Warning. This series has depictions of gendered violence and some coarse language. Please use your discretion when listening. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice. Visit ilobeyou.ca today and click through the show notes to find resources, citations, and learn more about the amazing guests you have already met in this series. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. Why aren't we doing this? Like, why is it I can't help you because you're not in my catchment area or I can't service you because you don't have the exact diagnosis that, you know, our agency takes. And I just kind of got lucky because I ended up working for some brain injury associations and in brain injury where we just didn't believe in barriers. And it was like, if somebody asks you for help, you figure out how to help them. There's a strong likelihood we will see better outcomes for everybody involved. Uh, And so that strengthens our families, that strengthens our communities, and and that that strengthens our neighborhoods, and we're, we're, we're much better off. These things that all of a sudden, women that we didn't even have on our radar as having had a brain injury were coming forward and saying, yes, yes. Episode 9, Agile. She's decided to leave, maybe this time for good. A woman who flees her violent relationship has tried an average of seven times before. This time, she's starting over. So how could her experience be different if a caring team helps her understand her mystifying symptoms? Let's go to the front lines and find out. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. She was living outside in a tent because she had been beaten up so many times by the same individual who followed her from New Brunswick to Ontario to make her life awful. And a lot of these beatings had actually happened in public in front of stores and things. And so people were calling the police and people were seeing it happen. She ended up having visual impairment in her left side because of it, blindness in her left side. So all of that stemmed from the intimate partner violence. And that's how she got her brain injuries. And as I started talking to more of my caseload, I was realizing that a lot of them were kind of on the same path. And and they'd been, the thing with them was that I can think of one in particular where her first brain injury was at the age of two. And it it stemmed from a near drowning accident where it was an anoxic brain injury. So she lost oxygen to the brain for a certain amount of time. And that paired with her childhood of abuse she was abused by her brother her mother was quite verbally and physically abusive back then she ended up having boyfriends through life who kind of sensed her vulnerability and ended up in relationships where she was sexually assaulted Um, she was verbally abused emotionally abused and these patterns followed her throughout her adulthood this is isabel i've introduced her briefly in a previous episode she is a violence impact coordinator with the Brain Injury Society of Toronto. She makes things happen. She inspired the name of this episode, Agile. Always pivoting, planning, and problem solving. She doesn't believe in barriers. Her caseload is women who identify as having a brain injury through intimate partner violence. And she gets these women what they need. Whether it's funding assistance, or to get to medical appointments, a hand to hold, or even in a desperate emergency. She and the BIS team are a steadfast lighthouse in a stormy ocean. 
I think we're lucky because I think funders are interested in finding out which direction these programs are going to go and and how we're going to serve these people. So I think we're kind of lucky because they're kind of just curious about what it is we're going to do next. So they they want to they want to help us out and let us do projects and they they want to fund seed grants that turn into grow grants and we're able to do things that we started out for 12 months and we can grow them for you know 3 years and eventually it just kind of become a staple in communities. Oh, we're a very small staff um, team. There's about five of us, I believe. And I just came on in October because there was a, um, a Trillium grant written for a, a seed grant for the year. So for 12 months, we were going to work with individuals um, who suffered brain injuries and intimate partner violence, who have been in shelters, etc., cetera, um, trying to help them get from OW to ODSP catching up on their simple taxes, helping them attend doctor's appointments, assisting them with diagnostic if that's what they're interested in. Um, any kind of counseling, it's a trauma-based approach, trauma-informed approach so that these individuals, it's not just I meet them, I talk to them a little bit, and then I kind of tell them, go here, go here, go here, and then I exit and they never see or talk to me again. Mm-hmm. Um, I carry a caseload. So the women that I work, that I work with, it's not just actually women, it's any individual um, can be in the transgendered LGBTQ community, um, anybody who identifies as a person who suffered from intimate partner violence and also brain injury can be on my caseload. And I can help them through things like family court, criminal court, help them fill out forms, help them make phone calls. I'm kind of like the accessibility device or olive branch that connects them to all the other specialists yeah. in the community that can help them for the longer term. People in Isabel's role don't exist everywhere. She is specialized and understands the backdrop of these women's lives. She understands the nuances of both brain injury and intimate partner violence. Because 90% of women who access the shelter system have a brain injury. So that's a pretty high percent of of women who are in shelters and also suffering from brain injuries. Um, We kind of like help them look for those signs and symptoms. And a lot of the women, they don't think of a concussion as a brain injury because I think they hear about it so much on the news with you know hockey players got a concussion and this this sporting person got a concussion and they just don't think of it as something that can affect their whole lives and then as a result also on the flip side you have the strangulation you know they don't think of being thrown down a flight of stairs as you know being a result of a brain injury or thrown through a door they just it or shaken a lot of these women get shaken a lot and they they get pretty rattled physically and they just they don't connect it until they have a worker that they're talking to and or the staff's been trained on ABI or TBI and they're saying you know do you rem-? if you can ask the right questions you can typically pull that out I try to explain to you know other agencies and service providers when I'm talking to them or if I'm doing presentations and explaining what I do and that kind of stuff I'm like you know but if you have a client who also really has memory issues and just can't seem to organize and get it together. They're having trouble explaining things to you. They're not good with filling out forms, like all these kinds of things. Their follow through is not good. They forget appointments They're just not showing up kind of when they're supposed to be like maybe rather than just discharging them back into nothing to try and maybe find a local brain injury association or brain injury society or some kind of brain injury service you could connect them with. And because the people who specialize in brain injury are going to pick up on those things right away. This is where information sharing is key. Workers and professionals with brain injury knowledge can educate and ensure that these women are being detected and resourced properly. And vice versa, those with intimate partner expertise can share and enrich the knowledge base for brain injury workers. Agencies use the word behavior to not service people. 
And so I don't like that. I don't like barriers. I really like barrier-free agile services that kind of go and do what, you, what needs to be done to get people help. Um, so I wouldn't say behavior, but you know, the symptoms that they're, that they're suffering due to their brain injury over long times can be really hard on families. And we get that. For you, when you're starting to work with someone and all the hope and everything you're putting into this individual, what is it like when you're hearing them being contemplative about returning to a relationship? It's really hard, but you, you, you approach all of your clients in a non-judgmental way. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you just, you kind of explain like with some of my girls, it's like, okay, I understand that, you know, you feel that you want to do this and it could happen. So if this is the choice that you make, what is going to be your safety plan now? And so for some people, if it would be, if it was to be a really horrible situation, I would just have them text me a certain emoji and then I would call 911 and have them sent right to the address because I know that that's her distress call. She just can't text me at that words at that point. Right. So you just have to kind of have things like that in place where if they're going to choose that, they're going to choose that. And we still support them in a non-judgmental way. I still mm -hmm. do. And I'll always be there for them. But I just have to sort of change my support based on what their specific situation is. So if they want to go back, but they still want help with doctor's appointments and, you know, financial stuff. And, and some of that could be also just them going back for now, but getting their stuff together on the side. Yeah. to get ready to really make the exit. So I would never, I, I would never come at someone and say, I can't believe you're doing that after all this work we've done. You know, it's like, yeah. no, that's your choice. And I'm still going to be here for you. And, and the most important thing I've learned in every job I've ever had with any population is you always have to show up. The most important thing you can do for another human being when they're in need is to just show up. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. Just show up. Do what you say when you say you will. Show up in a way that others in their lives just haven't. Now I'd like to introduce you to Jeff and Candice. My name is Jeff Singh. I am the manager of brain injury services for the Cridge Centre for the Family. I'm Candice Stretch, the manager of the Cridge Supportive Housing at the Cridge Centre in Victoria, BC. What Candace and Jeff do at the Cridge is blend their silos of brain injury, emergency shelter, and second stage housing for a unique approach, but like all others, had their own light bulb moments relatively recently. The agency that I'm with is a unique situation is that we are supporting survivors of brain injury, but another service that we have is supporting women and children escaping relationship violence. And with, with violence, you, you tend to think, oh, possible brain injuries. But the penny dropped for me when um, I went to a conference in Toronto and attended a workshop hosted by Angela Colantonio of the University of Toronto. And she had a panel discussion, uh, which was just outstanding, uh, looking at the relationship between brain injury and intimate partner violence. And that's when... Uh, it really dawned on me that, yes, this is an issue. Uh, and it's not just a Toronto issue. It's not just a Victoria issue, but um, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national, unfortunately, worldwide issue that we need to address. They are some of the few working in the intersection of intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury. He and Candace have goals to widely educate on the topic, but they know the barriers all too well. The, the, the challenge with this 
issue is that, um, yes, this came out in 2016, but this problem's been with us for, for, for decades and, and generations. And, and, and it's, it's, it's really quite sad that there hasn't been a lot of research, uh, awareness, uh, support in this area. And, and if we look at it just in North America, uh, we, there's only a handful of agencies that are providing this service, looking at the, the relationship between brain injury and intimate partner violence. The immediate need is housing and, and just survival. And, 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 and the, the, the physical medical issues really aren't addressed or identified. It's, oh, I left, I have to leave. And now, now we have to start a plan of, of rebuilding your life um, after leaving your home and, and, and trying to stay away from a, a violent offender. And we all know that funding also follows research, which is just starting to happen. So how do you feel about the state of the funding structure for this issue? Like, is there money for it? No, no. And, and, and that is our uphill battle. It is an uphill battle. He went on to explain there is some money for intimate partner violence and limited money for brain injury. But what he wants to see is money for the two combined a new pot. He knows this can help on the ground at places like the Cridges Transition House. In the Transition House, uh, we, we hear stories that, oh, the women, they're, they're being lazy. They're, they're not following through with uh, making their appointments. They're not following through with filling out these forms. They're not following through with, with keeping these commitments. They're being lazy. They're just taking advantage of the system. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to be so uh, cri critical about this, but these are some of the challenges that frontline workers have in supporting uh, the, these women who are escaping relationship uh, violence. But let's get to the root of the problem. If, if you're in a fog and you can't remember the, or identify the importance of filling out these forms and you can't remember and you can't recall or you can't, you, you need help filling out the forms, then how do we expect these women to succeed into their next step? Of course they're going to forget. Of course they're not going to follow through. But let's address the brain injury and say, oh, you need some time. You need some support. This is the tangled web of traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence, the confounding factor of post-traumatic stress disorder with overlapping symptomatology. Candace explains further. Did it make you look at the, their situation differently when you heard this information? It really did because we had been looking at everything through a trauma lens and we do know that uh, trauma, like emotional and psychological trauma, has an impact on the way that the brain functions. But the, you know, our our response to that was to try to work with those women in trauma-informed ways, and to, in many cases, help to get them connected to in-depth trauma counseling. And what we were finding was that some women were just not functioning any any better after trauma counseling. And sometimes, honestly, we would wonder what was really going on. Were they maybe had still struggling with an addiction issue or were there 
other things going on, but we, it's crazy to think of it now, but we never really thought, oh, maybe the trauma is actually a physical trauma to their brain um, that can't really be fixed by counseling, but needs to be fixed through actual medical interventions and compensatory strategies to help them with the actual brain injury. This woman is already overwhelmed, completely exhausted, and then she steps into the house and there's a lot to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we really have to balance that and uh, try to um, work at a pace that makes sense, but also recognizing that uh, we can't, people can't stay as long as sometimes they'd like to because we have wait lists and more women that need to come in. And that's where one of the things we've heard from our colleagues in the brain injury, the Critch Brain Injury Program is that we we just, they can't fathom how we could have a woman with a brain injury in the transition house for only 30 days mm-hmm. um, because the amount of time that it would take just even to do any task would be exponentially longer than any other client. Um, and again, that makes us, that makes me think back to many, many clients we've had over the years in the transition house where we just can't get moving on anything. Um, and you know, they're, they seem scattered and disorganized and they're not showing up at the times we say, you know, we're available to help you with the housing application tonight after dinner, but then they are nowhere to be found after dinner. And, you know, those types of things where it just seems like, oh my goodness, we need to get moving on this. And it feels like we're working harder than the client right now and what's going on. And it just, that's another one of those light bulb moments of thinking, oh my goodness, you know, there were so many things that maybe we needed to do to set up the space and to set up the time and to communicate in a way that would make it easy for that person to connect. But the fact that they turned to their brain injury partners at all is amazing. Using that knowledge base to adjust their programming and maybe even the length of stay given the diagnosis of brain injury. In the transition house where we would see 100 to 125 women per year, um, we were not having conversations about brain injury at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And in our supportive housing, we're just beginning to have those conversations as we start this initiative. And the, the nice thing about our supportive housing is that women are living with us for up to three years. So there's time for us to really respond and begin to connect them to the supports they need. It just seems that it's, it's really an epidemic of like 70, 80% of women. So when you think about, um, what we don't know, those of us working on the front lines, working with women, um, it just, we just have so much more to learn to respond to the issue. Candace and Jeff at the Cridge were one of only a few select groups that were collaborators on the ABI Toolkit as a partner organization. Well, we did work on developing a toolkit with University of Toronto. And one of the things in that toolkit, so our staff all now have access to it and they use it. Um, One of the things is um, that they have links to screening tools like there's something called the helps tool which is very frequently used for screening for brain injury so um yes we are able to do that and 
certainly uh, we did another study with the University of Victoria and we had six participants from our housing that actually did the screening tool and met the criteria and wanted to participate in this in a, a qualitative study so we have used it with our clients um, we are a little bit uh, what would I say cautious because of the fact that we know that there are very limited resources right now for women for anybody who has a brain injury um, the, it's a very underfunded sector and so uh, we don't want to sort of start screening everyone that comes in the door and not be properly prepared to actually connect those people to what they need mm-hmm. um, so when we think about doing something like screening at our transition house uh, I think we feel like we need to have a little bit more uh, we need to spend more time developing our um, our support system at the Cridge and developing this brain injury and intimate partner violence initiative, maybe even hopefully having a staff member that would be hired specifically to support those women before we just start screening everybody. And how do we get this message to people that need to hear it that are involved with funding and can see how sort of ignored this group of people have been. Of particular interest to me is Jeff's focus on prevention for male survivors of traumatic brain injury from even becoming violent. He feels this is a missing piece of the puzzle and an area we have neglected in this series. What are the causes of male violence in this context? And and this is an important aspect is is prevention for an awareness for males, males, survivors. When we did this uh, study with our our, our UVic student, she, one of the questions that she asked the um, participants is uh, how many of their, if their partner, if their violent partner, abusive partner, had a brain injury. And and out of uh, six interviews, the, the number was 100%. Every one of, of the abusive partners had suffered a brain injury at one time. And, and don't please don't get me wrong. I'm not justifying behavior uh, of these males of, of being violent and aggressive, but it's an understanding that we need to provide support for an education and understanding for these survivors, uh, uh, so they don't become abusive and aggressive, and they find strategies to help them overcome the difficulties that they are encountering. And it, 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 instead of perpetual circle cycle going down, what we're looking at is supports and understanding so the survivor succeeds, so their family succeeds, and, and, and in a sense, a cycle going up, forward, positive, as opposed to down, negative, and, and some of the, the tragic outcomes that we see as a result of intimate partner violence and, and, and brain injury. Stay tuned for the next, the 10th, and the final episode. 
it is easier to do concussion research on male sports injuries. There is funding, political will, and interest. But these researchers aren't concerned with their work being simple. They are determined to wade into the complex and get this research off the ground. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. So yeah, it's not a one-time occurrence. We had, for, for the, those, those statistics, there was 87% of women who said that they were strangled on more than one occasion. This season has sparked a big idea. Go to ilobeyou.ca and sign up to find out more very soon. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You.